Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey everyone, and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This would be Season 2, Episode 15, for Friday, April 6th. I guess we can call this the final regular season edition of the Bobcast. Might even call it the Salty Dog edition of the Bobcast. I am feeling a little salty, a little owly. No, no particular reason why, but I feel a little combative. Um, and I shouldn't. I mean, we just finished Mail It In March, and it was a, a very successful Mail It In March. I should be fresh for April, but I, I don't know. I feel a little edgy. And it might be that I mailed it in March just too well, that it's getting difficult to get it back into sync after a Mail It In March that was absolutely epic. I mean, I had five days in Turks and Caicos. I had five days for the general manager's meetings in Boca. Um, got used to some really nice weather. And here we are in April. And, um, you know, part of the thing about March, whether it's March break or mail it in March or whatever you want to say, it's supposed to be the last real shitty month as far as weather goes. And I realize you can get some bad weather in April. But nevertheless, you know, we should call this the where the f*** is spring edition of the Bobcast. I don't know what it's like where you live. And if you're in Turks and Caicos or Boca, I know you got nothing to gripe about. But, I mean, it's been so cold and and windy. My goodness. Uh, Pierre Lebrun sent me a, a, a photo of a gigantic tree that crashed down on out in front of his house. Um, Darren Dreger was on a plane for like four hours that never took off to go to LaGuardia for his NBC thing because it was so goddamn windy, um, you know, a little spring would be nice. And, and that's the thing. You think by the time March is over and you, you have your little break and you go somewhere warm, it's all going to be better in April because now the, the bad weather is gone, but it still seems to be hanging around. Anyways, nobody feels sorry for me. I understand that. Um, and, and quite frankly, I wouldn't expect you to because I finished mailing in March with an absolute flourish like a boss. Um, last week, uh, this past week, Tuesday night, I got to go see Springsteen on Broadway, and it was absolutely fantastic. Now, if you're, if you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, you automatically understand it's going to be fantastic. If you're in the anti-Bruce category, and there is this huge anti-Bruce backlash because Bruce is so popular, um, then probably best to fast forward for uh, the next two minutes while I talk about how great the uh, Springsteen on Broadway thing was. It's really a novel concept, and it's just Bruce, his guitar, his piano. His wife, Patty, comes out for a couple of songs. But really, it's just him in a really intimate setting. It's, it's at a place on Broadway, the Walter Kerr Theater, and it only, I think I was looking at the capacity online, and I think there's 975 seats in the place. And I was sitting in row N, which I think is the 14th row back. Somebody will correct me if... Uh, if I'm wrong, no doubt. And um, so you're like, you're right there. And, you know, you, you feel like you could reach out and touch the guy. He's that close. 
and he never sounded better. And it, it is really an intimate night, and it's it's not a concert at all. Um, although he does play fifteen songs either on the guitar or on his piano uh, with the piano. Um, it's it's sort of this intimate, mostly talking, reading excerpts from his book. Although he doesn't really sound like he's reading from the book, even though they are excerpts. Um, and it's it's just about his journey, about uh, growing up in Jersey and becoming who he is, and uh, his family, his life, uh, the ups, the downs, the pros, the cons, all that stuff. Uh, so absolutely remarkable. It's uh, it's a real tough ticket to get. I was fortunate enough who had a friend of a friend who uh, who kind of hooked me up, and I only had to pay face value for the ticket, and which isn't cheap. Um, my, the ticket I I paid for six hundred bucks U.S. Um, now, the, the guy beside me paid, I think, double that on StubHub. Uh, by the way, the guy beside me was from San Diego, a pretty good sense of humor. We're a cu- we were a couple of days, a few days removed from April Fool's Day, and he sits down beside me, and he starts looking at the program or the, the little insert in the program, and he goes, hmm, wow. I, I said, what? And he goes, yeah, due to illness, playing the part of Bruce Springsteen tonight is Bon Jovi. And like just for the split second, he had me. I was like, "Holy shit!" And then I was like, "Come on!" I realized that I just been had, but I'm I'm very quick to point out that I only got taken for a fraction of two seconds. But nevertheless, I did for a moment um, get a little bit taken there. So, anyways, um, uh, it's an expensive ticket. It's a hard ticket to get. Although he has extended now, I think for the balance of the year, basically. So. Um, that's bad news for all those of us that like to go see Bruce in the E Street Band, because as long as he's doing this um, Monday to Friday uh, in, on Broadway, he ain't going to be touring anytime soon with the E Street Band. Um, but if you get a chance, uh, by all means, do it. I'll quickly give you the set list here. Uh, growing up, my hometown. Um, I can't even read my writing here. My father's house, The Wish, Thunder Road, Promised Land, Born in the USA, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, Tougher Than the Rest, Brilliant Disguise, Long Walk Home, The Ring, Dancing in the Dark, Land of Hopes and Dreams, and finishes up with Born to Run. And as I said, all acoustic, but uh, really, really uh, haunting, um, introspective, and uh, just a fantastic night. So anyways, that was uh, the one aspect of my uh, trip to New York, um, which I obviously combined with my, uh, my NBC gig on Wednesday night. My last NHL regular season NBC gig this past Wednesday. Um, but I also combined it to make it the full mail it in March production and was able to get in and do my third annual Howard Stern wrap-up show with John Hine, Gary Delabate, and my, my fellow guest that day, um, Zach Braff. Uh, you may know him from Scrubs, and he's, uh, he was in promoting that day and being part of the wrap-up show, his new show, Alex Inc., on one of the major networks there. So cool guy, cool dude, uh, nice to meet him. And uh, love doing the wrap-up show. As I mentioned, this is the third straight year that I've gotten to do the wrap-up show. and um, But this one was different because the first two times, um, they were on break. And as everybody knows, Howard Stern only has a show on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays. But there are lots of weeks of the year where there's no show at all. And they basically do reruns. And so on each of the first two occasions, that I was in for the wrap-up show. There was it was an it was a non-show week, non-live show week. 
So it was pretty quiet, uh, and, you know, John Hine, Gary Delbate, myself, Rasan, and, uh, and, and the guys. But, you know, the, the office was very quiet. There was nothing really going on, per se, outside of the wrap-up show. Uh, on this day, it's way different. When, when the show is on and you walk in, man, oh, man, there was a lot of energy. And as soon as, uh, as, soon as I was taken through the door by Steve Brandano, one of the producers there, um, first guy I run into is Ronnie Mund, and I see Richard walking down the hallway. And uh, if you don't know who these characters are, well, uh, check Stern Show out. But um, it was, the, as I said, the energy was phenomenal, and it was just a completely different atmosphere. So it was very, very cool. And it, it's kind of neat because even though Howard Stern has no use for sports and certainly no use for, for hockey, um, and obviously that's not why I listen to it. Uh, he's as good an interviewer as it gets, and there's lots of really funny stuff on it. Um, a lot of the guys on staff are huge hockey fans. John Hine, for example, absolute Pittsburgh Penguin diehard, um, and he's pretty excited because he's also a big University of Michigan fan, and aside from the fact that they were in the Final Four, although they lost in the, uh, in the final to Villanova, uh, University of Michigan's also in the Frozen Four, this weekend, so um, he's pretty excited about that. Gary Delbate, Baba Bowie is a big New York Islander fan, of course, being a guy from from Long Island. Brent Hatley's uh, he was talking up the Tampa Bay Lightning and how they're going to win the cup, and we were exchanging stories of when he was living in Tampa and, uh, and when Hulk Hogan and, and Hulk Hogan's daughter was singing the national anthem during the 2004 Cup final, and Brent was there for a lot of that. So it's, um, it's really cool to get to meet all these people associated with the Stern show. They're all a, a great bunch of guys. And a lot of them really like hockey and like to talk about their favorite teams. So that's how I finished mail it in March with an absolute flourish. Uh, doesn't get any better than that. Springsteen on Broadway on Tuesday, the 27th and the Howard Stern wrap up show on Wednesday, the 28th. But here we are. It's April time to gear up. Regular season's almost over. Playoffs coming within the next week. Exciting time of year. But actually, before we drift to all the hockey stuff, and we got a lot to talk about, um, a quick uh, Netflix series alert. Um, one of the I actually get really gratified when I get feedback um, on some of these Netflix series. Um, friend of the show, Alan Steele in Boston. Um, can't stop talking about Peaky Blinders. Love to hear that. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, who was the other one? There was, oh, uh, Black Dog Pat loves Border Town, um, the Finnish show with the subtitles. And, uh, I, I get extremely gratified when people say how excited they are to be into a series that got recommended on the Bobcast. So a couple more for you here. Um, you've heard me talk about the British Copper shows. I mentioned Broadchurch many times before. Um, season three of Broadchurch mysteriously appeared on Netflix in the last little while. So, um, I, uh, I, I, I mowed that one down pretty quickly and it was outstanding. So if you haven't seen Broadchurch, uh, there's three seasons waiting on Netflix for you to check that out. That's really good. And the most recent one that I just finished up is, uh, American Copper Show, uh, American Crime Show, uh, Seven Seconds. And boy, oh boy, is it ever good. It is tense and it is dark. And I don't want to give away too much other than to say that it's racially charged, politically charged, sociologically charged, extremely well done, um, very dramatic. Um, also, 
very sad. And I'll just simply leave it at that and urge you to uh, check out Seven Seconds on Netflix. It's a beauty. All right, then. Let's talk some hockey now. Where to start? Where to start? There's uh, so many ways we could go here. Uh, let's, let's do this. Congratulations to the Buffalo Sabres. Last place overall, baby. Well done. The best odds, 18.5% in the draft lottery. Now, I'm sure that Jason Botterill, the new general manager of the Sabres, and head coach Phil Housley, the new head coach this season, I'm sure they didn't expect this. I'm sure they didn't want it. Uh, they did not try to tank. Um, they earned it. They, uh, they were that bad this year. And I think that caught a lot of people, including myself to some degree, by surprise. Um, and it's, I think it's going to be a real interesting uh, offseason in Buffalo. Um, I don't, there's, there's not going to be any management or coaching changes that I'm aware of. Um, but I've got to think there's going to be some player changes and that they're going to shake things up a little bit. Um, I, I won't get too specific on that because I think it's too early for that. But what I would say is this. I, I think some of the players, there's going to be some players traded out of there. And I suspect there's probably going to be some players that ask to be traded out of there after the, uh, the year that they had. So anyways, for Buffalo right now, the only thing that matters is uh, trying to win the draft lottery. And I, I did have a little fun on Twitter this week. Um, I, uh, I tweeted out what day was it. Let me look here. So this would have been two days ago or three days ago. Uh, so I tweeted, well, there goes an hour of my life I'll never get back. And I linked it to Tankathon, the 2018 NHL draft order and lottery simulator. So you click on that. It's actually pretty cool. Tankathon.com. I guess they, it works for the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, Major League Baseball. They do mock drafts and what have you. And they basically show the, uh, the, the, the current standings while the season's still going on. Um, soon to be the final standings, and maybe by the time you're listening to this, the regular season's over. But in any case, Buffalo is uh, locked and loaded with 18.5% odds. And I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do it, but I just started pushing buttons on the, uh, the lottery simulator uh, the other day. <laughs> and like I say, an hour later, I was still doing it. And it's fascinating because it's, it's so much fun to do because... People think that, wow, let's, let's push the button and see what happens. Let's do it. We'll, 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 we'll live to tape, simulate the lottery right now. So here we go in three, two, one. I push the button. There it is. Oh, my goodness. Congratulations to the Detroit Red Wings. You've moved up five spots. You have the number one pick. The next Nick Lidstrom, Rasmus Dahlin, going to Detroit. should point out that the Montreal Canadiens moved up one spot to number two. And the New York Islanders moved up five spots to number three. So Buffalo dropped three, Ottawa dropped three, Arizona dropped two, Vancouver dropped two, and Edmonton dropped one, and everybody else is exactly the same. That, I, of course, should point out, those were the, the precise moment I hit the simulator. That was the standings. And as I say, things the odds will change over the weekend depending where teams finish. But you, you, you get addicted to it. And, and here's the thing. Now, a lot, of, a lot of people who follow me on Twitter, they started doing it. Then they started tweeting back the results at me. And the funny thing is, they made the same mistake that I once made. And that is, I, you know, I think one, once upon a time with the draft lottery, I said, I'm going to do this 10 times to see what comes out. And 
It doesn't matter. It's not predictive. A lottery by its very nature is random. What happens in the 10 or 100 or 1,000 or a million times you run a simulated lottery before, it doesn't have any predictive powers on what's going to happen. So if you happen to run the lottery 10 times and your team won at 9, it doesn't mean that they're going to get it with the next one or they're not going to get it for the next one. It, there's, there's no predictive powers in this whatsoever. I don't know much about math, but people taught me that. So anyways, but it's still fun to do. And for me, the fun isn't trying to predict what will happen. The fun is just imagining the carnage in the various cities who either win or lose. So let's, let's hit the reset button here. Detroit won at that time. There it is. Now we're going to go back and try it again. Sim lottery. Hit it. Da, da, da. Hey, congratulations to the New York Rangers. You have the first pick overall. You moved up nine spots, the Rangers did, on this simulation. Ottawa stays at number two. Buffalo drops to number three, and then everybody else drops down one spot. So the interesting thing for me is when you do that, imagining what the mood would be like if the New York Rangers get the first overall pick and, and imagining Rasmus Dahlin as a New York Ranger and, and what Ottawa or Buffalo might feel. How will Buffalo feel dropping from one to three, um, knowing that they didn't win the Connor McDavid lottery either so that's kind of cool so let's let's do it one more time for the sake of story hit reset sim lottery boom oh my goodness guess who moved up 13 spots the florida panthers as i speak the panthers aren't even eliminated from the playoffs but on this simulation of the the lottery they were still in it so there you go florida 13 spots Detroit moves up four spots to number two, and Arizona moves up one spot. So Buffalo drops three, Ottawa drops three, and Montreal drops three. Wow, those Atlantic teams would not be happy to drop three. And that's the fun of doing the lottery simulator, is just imagining how outraged various markets will be if they drop three spots, and just imagining how absolutely amazed a a team like Florida, if they miss the playoffs, would be to get that first overall pick. Wow, could you imagine Darlene going with Barkoff and Huberto and all the other good young talent? Anyways, one more for old time's sake. Here we go. Reset. Sim lottery. Oh, my goodness. Florida won it again. Who said it's not predictive? Up 13 spots. But get this. Edmonton Oilers up five spots. And get this. Chicago Blackhawks up six spots. Florida picking one. Edmonton picking two. Chicago picking three. And then Buffalo, Ottawa, Montreal, Arizona, Vancouver, Detroit, all dropping three spots in the lottery. If that actually happened, if three teams from so far off the mark, like Florida, Edmonton, and Chicago, all jumped up and got those top three spots, and Buffalo dropped three, and Ottawa dropped three, and Montreal dropped three, and Arizona dropped three, and Vancouver, do you imagine the angst in Vancouver if they dropped three spots from five to eight? My goodness. Anyways, uh, lots of fun and games. Um, We look forward to the draft lottery, which, if I'm not mistaken, let me look it up, make sure I've got the right date, uh, would be on Saturday the 29th. So uh, draft lottery, people, mark that in your calendar. Saturday, April 29th. And in the meantime, you can play Tankathon to your heart's content. 
There was uh, lots of big news in the National Hockey League this week, and maybe none bigger than Daniel and Henrik Sedin in Vancouver announcing that uh, they're retiring, that this is it for them, uh, that once this season's over, uh, so is their illustrious, so are their illustrious NHL careers. And um, it didn't take very long for the Bobcast to get a uh, Daniel and Henrik question. So this comes from uh, Stephen. Uh, hi, Bob. First off, a huge fan of the podcast. It's great hearing all the anecdotes from both your professional and personal life, and there's nothing better than hearing your voice coming through my car stereo system. Thank you. As a Canucks fan, I am heartbroken to hear about the Sedin's impending retirement. We all knew this was coming, but it is still a sentimental feeling. No, we will never see such a unique combo in Vancouver and didn't fully appreciate them. With that being said, what's your favorite memory stories of the Twins, and what are your thoughts on a potential Hockey Hall of Fame induction? Any ideas on how you think Jim Benning approaches this summer with young prospects knocking on the doors and $14 million in cap space. All the best, SL, from Stephen. Okay, Stephen. Um, I'm a big, big, big fan of the Sedins um, and have been right from the get-go. And um, I think one of the, the Brian Burke maneuvering in the 1999 draft to get both of them was uh, some of the slickest work that's ever been done in the history of the draft. And it really kicked off a remarkable run where never have two players in the NHL been so closely identified with each other. I mean, it doesn't get any closer than than twins, identical twins, who get drafted together, who play on the same line, who start and finish their careers together and and do just about everything almost identically. Why they call them identical twins, I guess. Um, but my first memory, my is is of the the Sedins was also one of my most lasting impressions of them. And I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again here, obviously in honor of the twins. And that was the 1999 World Junior Championship in Winnipeg. Fantastic tournament. Anybody who knows uh, has heard the Bobcast before knows that that was one of the most uh, exciting World Juniors ever. That I've I don't know that I've ever been in a building. That was as loud as when Canada came out for the gold medal, what turned out to be the gold medal game, uh, or was the gold medal game, against the Russians uh, in the Winnipeg Arena. It, it was it sent shivers uh, up and down my spine. It was, it was so good. But anyways, I digress. Canada was playing Sweden, and the Sedins, it was their draft year, so they were obviously well-known um, as one of the, the elite guys for that draft. And it was a particularly rough game, and Canada was trying the old we're going to intimidate the Swedes trick. And there was a player on the Swedish team, and I, I want to say that he was this, the, the Sedin's line mate, but I don't recall exactly. Um, and there was a big, big rough-and-tumble Western Canadian defenseman by the name of Brad Ference on Team Canada. And um, he absolutely buried this Swedish player into the boards, and it was a real nasty hit, and... Uh, the Swedish player was knocked unconscious and was down and out on the ice. And it was really, um, the Winnipeg Arena went deathly quiet because they had to bring the stretcher out. The player was unconscious. There were obviously fears that it might have been a catastrophic injury. Um, having said that, the, the, the Canadian players at that point didn't seem too concerned by that because they were just giving it to Daniel and Henrik and the rest of the Swedes. And I was had the good fortune of being at ice level. And I was, I was not doing color commentary for the 
TSN World Junior Broadcast, but I, I was between the benches. And it's funny, I, not to toot my own horn here, but I, I want to say that might have been the beginning of the whole idea of putting somebody between the benches. And in the Winnipeg Arena, it wasn't in the penalty box or in the glass area between the two. It was just open area um, between the, the two benches that were side by each. And um, so I was down there basically filling in as necessary as the third guy on the broadcast. And um, it was... Uh, to, I want to say that the Canadian players were basically threatening dis, death and dismemberment uh, to the Sedins and all the other Swedish players. As this player is literally being carted off the ice after being knocked unconscious, and, and who knows, at the time, he could have had a broken neck, whatever, but you know, he's, he, when he went off the ice... As I said, the Canadians were just giving it to the Sedins, and the stuff they were saying was, I, I couldn't even... I couldn't even repeat it here, and it was so offside. Hockey was different back then. Um, there's a lot of stuff still goes on, but I, I don't think nearly the level it was back then. And it was personal, and it was deep and disturbing, and all, of course, designed to intimidate. And I, I, I always remember looking at the look on the Sedin's face as these Canadian players were screaming and yelling at them, and... And I was trying to think, are they intimidated? Is this affecting them? Is this bothering them? And there was no real visible sort of reaction. They just kind of looked, and and I I don't know. I I wondered if they might be intimidated by it. And then I also wondered that maybe they were just taken aback, that they'd never seen this species of charged up, fired up uh, teenage animal before. And... um, but it was almost as if to say, the look on the face, and, and now I, I can kind of go back, and based on everything the Sedins have been through on and off the ice in their NHL career, I can now kind of go back and say, I know what that look was. That look was, this doesn't bother us at all. There's nothing you can say or do that's going to take us off our game. We are totally unflappable. We are unintimidated. Um, and I know there's going to be some Boston Bruin fans that say, yeah, Brad Marchand slapped them around in the cup final and they didn't win the big one. Yeah, they didn't win the big one, but it wasn't because the Sedins um, got pushed around by Brad Marchand. The, 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 the Sedins brought their own brand of toughness and courage um, to the National Hockey League, and I think they carried themselves in such a way that was Jean Beliveau-esque. Um, if we can, if we can use that on two Swedish kids uh, instead of number four for the Montreal Canadiens, who was always sort of the the poster boy for the classiest guy that maybe ever played the game, uh, I think the Sedins fall into that category as the classiest players to have ever played the game. It didn't matter what names they got called. It didn't no matter what physical abuse they took. Um, they 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 were terrific. They put up magnificent numbers. They. And it's funny because they they really sort of redefined the cycle game in the National Hockey League. I'm not sure anybody did it better. Um, and the cycle game is sort of personified as as playing a power game. And yet when you look at the, the Sedins, they don't scream power at you. And yet they're deceptively big and strong. And they're not overly fast. And they weren't physically intimidating. And those are usually a lot of the qualities that get associated with somebody who's a tremendous cycler of the puck, but it's like they use their, their brains, their hands, their feet, geometry, angles, um, science, um, to, 
who absolutely mesmerized a lot of the teams that they played. There's a, a, a shift in particular that I remember, and I want to say it was right after the NHL went to three-on-three, but it might not have been. Maybe it was just a three-on-three game that I was watching. And the, the Canucks decided to start uh, the Sedin twins, and I want to say it was Alex Edler. And I was looking at it, and for some reason I think it was the first year that we introduced three-on-three. Um, and I remember l- watching the game and thinking to myself, man, is this a mistake? These guys aren't fast enough. Edler and the Sedins, not nearly quick enough. And I forget what team they were playing, but there was all sorts of speed and youth on the three-on-three that they were up against. And I thought, this isn't going to end well for the Sedins or the Vancouver Canucks. And on that first shift, the best way I can put it, as I recall it, is the Sedins basically mind whoever they were out against. And it, in, in less than a minute, they had completely dismantled their opposition and they scored the goal to win it in overtime. And I go, well, there you go. You learn something new every day. And I, I think that just speaks to the, 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 the quality of, of not being physically intimidating, not being loud or obnoxious or, or any of those things, and just playing the game the way they knew how to play it which at times was was almost better than anybody else, certainly in the the cycle department. And um, everybody knows the stories of their class and what they've done for the city of Vancouver Children's Hospital, um, everything else and how modest they are and and professional to a fault. So anyways, um, those are my memories of of them. Um, And uh, it was touching that when they... uh, they made their announcement. Um, they did it in, in such a classy fashion. They didn't want to do it at the beginning of the season for a whole farewell tour, um, but they wanted to uh, to do it and, and give the Vancouver fans an opportunity to pay homage to them, and I, and I think that's fair. So, As for whether they're Hall of Famers, I'm actually on the Hockey Hall of Fame Selection Committee, so I'm going to defer uh, and not uh, comment on that at this point in time, um, which is what I do in all those situations for now. But um, they're they're great players, classy players on and off the ice, and I love what they've uh, what they've brought to the National Hockey League. And as for how Jim Benning's going to spend his fourteen million in cap space, as as Steve suggested, um, it's going to be fascinating. The Vancouver market's already freaking out because the, you know over the last number of years they've shown a, a propensity for wanting to sign guys, veteran players to uh, to deals. I would hope that they don't get too committed to too many older players for too long. But there's no question in my mind, no doubt whatsoever, that they're going to use some of that money to go out and get players. And I saw one of the uh, reporters in Vancouver suggested Tyler Bozak of the Toronto Maple Leafs might be somebody that they'd be interested in. I could see that. Um, You know, they've got... The Sedins, even though they started to play trend towards more third-line role on this team... (laughs) They're still front and center in terms of their point production. It's not going to be easy to replace those numbers, so you've got to go out and, and get something. I think there's going to be a lot of Evander Kane talk, and I think that's even within the Vancouver Canuck organization. Might be a polarizing discussion. Um, Kane, by the way, doing great in, in San Jose since he was traded over there. Hometown Vancouver guy. Um, I think there will be people within the Vancouver organization who think that's a good idea. And I suspect there'll be people within the Vancouver organization who think that maybe it's not such a great idea. 
So we'll have to see. I, I heard somebody suggest Washington Capitol defenseman John Carlson. In my mind, an American defenseman who's um, an American-born and bred defenseman uh, who's looking to obviously, A, win a cup, and B, hit a home run. And a home run would be a, a six-, seven-, or eight-year contract for more than $7 million a year. I just don't see any—I don't envision any scenario whereby he'd have interest in the Vancouver Canucks or that's even a realistic possibility for what any of that's worth. But uh, it's going to be a fascinating summer in Vancouver and uh, post Thedine. But uh, to Hen- Henrik and Daniel, um, thanks. Uh, you, guys, uh, you guys are the best. Speaking of the best, there was a lot of talk this week about who is the best choice for the Hart Trophy. Oh, my goodness. People are battling hard on this whole thing. The Hart Trophy, of course, goes to the player judged to be most valuable to his team. Not the best player. That's the Ted Lindsay Trophy voted on by the National Hockey League Players Association membership, a.k.a. also known as the Players. Um, Yeah, so um, we got lots of mail on that. I'll just give a a quick sampling of this before I get into a rather prolonged harangue discussion um, on, on the Hart Trophy. First, first one comes from Casey. Hey, Bob, love the Bobcast. All the way up in Alaska. I'm a huge Philadelphia Flyers fan. My question is, why doesn't Claude Giroux get any love from the national audience? He's one of the league's top scorers over the last five years. This year he's having a career year and is carrying the Flyers into the playoffs despite the team juggling rookies and four goaltenders. Why isn't he considered one of the favorites for the Hart Trophy like McKinnon or Hall? Keep up the good work. It's almost Bobby Margarita time. That from Casey Wrestler in Wasilla, Alaska. Wasilla, Alaska. Malls, you know what that's famous for, don't you? It's the home of Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, the governor of Alaska, one-time governor of Alaska. Anyways, Casey, if you see Sarah Palin, tell her I said hello. Anyways, um, so that's, there's, there's the Giroux camp is being heard from. Um, how about this one from Patrick? Hi, Bob. I'm really enjoying the podcast. Thanks so much for taking your time out to do it. I have two questions, one hockey-related, one not. So here goes. Anze Kopitar just had four goals and a dominant performance over the Avalanche. I'm not saying he should win the Hart Trophy, although I think he should, but that he should at least be getting some more recognition than he is. Is there really that much of an East Coast bias, or is he simply just not doing what he needs to do to be seriously considered? As for his other question, it is. The other is, I was wondering if you've ever had a chance to visit the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. Great wine tours and beautiful area. If not, I highly recommend it. Not only because I am from there, but because I have never gone wine tasting anywhere else. I want to know how it stacks up. Thanks again, Bob, for everything you do. And I hope you have a great rest of the hockey year. Patrick. Well, Patrick, I've not spent time in the summer at the Finger Lakes. Um, I have been to Ithaca for Cornell Big Red Hockey. Uh, when my son Mike was playing for St. Lawrence University and and loved that area. Um, But I've not done the wine tours of the Finger Lakes. I hear they're very good. i got to spend more time in Niagara. i got to spend more time in the Finger Lakes now. i got to go to British Columbia and and do the Okanagan again. Um, Anyways, uh, so in answer to your question on the wine, no, we'll eventually get to that. But thank you for the the heads up. But um, And and thank you for the, the... the, the two cents on Anze Kopitar. We'll, we'll talk more about him in a second. Here's another one. Um, this is from Mel. 
How can Connor McDavid not be a candidate for MVP? His overall play is above anyone, and his stats are incredible while playing on a team that has very little support for him. He kills more penalties than most players. If the MVP is about a player that makes his team better, can you imagine where the Oilers players would be mentally without him? That from Mel. Now, I could have pulled out a letter um, on Brad Marchant. I could have pulled out one on Nathan McKinnon. Could have pulled out one for Alexander Barkov. I could have pulled out one for Taylor Hall. Could have pulled out one for Evgeny Malkin, Nikita Kucherov, Alexander Ovechkin, William Carlson, Blake Wheeler. Um, I'm sure I'm missing somebody. And I'm sure now I'll get letters for any one of the... Did I say Johnny Goodrow? Um, I don't know. Oh, yeah. So Johnny Goodrow. Could have got a letter on Johnny Goodrow. Could have got a letter on Antemi Pernera. I think I'm up to 15 names. And everybody's convinced that their guy is getting screwed in the discussion for MVP. And the reality is, of those 15 names, literally seven, eight, nine of them are, are what I would call absolutely 100% legitimate considerations. And so what's going to happen is the vote's going to get split all over the map because they are legit. And I understand why, why our friend in Alaska... Casey thinks Giroux's getting screwed. And I understand why Mel thinks that Connor's getting screwed. And on and on it goes. But the reality is there are no bad choices. Although if your guy's not one of the five finalists, uh, it's actually the only get to be three finalists. Um, But as a member of the Professional Hockey Writers Association who votes on this, I have to pick five only. And this is the year when there's going to be transparency, when our ballots are going to be made public after the awards have been presented, which I have no problem with. Um, it's not such a big deal. Uh, I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. That's not the, the, the primary point of our heart discussion here. Um, did I mention William Carlson? Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah, William Carlson from Vegas. People are mad we're not considering him at the front of the line. Um, the problem you run into with this award is the whole a judge to be most valuable to his team because value like beauty is very much in the eye of the beholder. So I understand why there are some people out there who absolutely believe that because the Edmonton Oilers have been dead and buried for most of this season, that they're not going to vote for Connor McDavid for the Hart Trophy. Um, I can assure you on my ballot, he's going to be one of my five guys. I'll maybe give you some explanation in a few minutes on that. But um, I understand why some people feel that way. It's their ballot. It's their vote. Do with it as you please. And, And if you want to ascribe the value as they absolutely have to be a playoff team or at least be in it a lot longer than McDavid's Oilers were in it, fair enough. Um, that's good. Now, what, what I don't like, though, is there is a segment of the population out there who are so highly agitated and think it's such a preposterous notion that Connor McDavid could even be considered for the Hart Trophy, never mind win it, that, that, that those individuals have decided that they've figured out the secret, the riddle of the universe or the, the, the specific meaning of judge, a judge to be most valuable to his team. If you feel that way, great. Fill out your ballot, but don't make anybody else feel stupid for including Connor McDavid because trust me, and I'll again explain in a moment 
why there's all sorts of numbers that would suggest that he should be considered amongst the, the top five. The, the problem you also run into is there are so many measures and metrics that you can look at. You've got your raw numbers, your goals, assists, your points. You've got your point per game. And then you get into a whole other list of metrics or analytics or whatever you want to call them. As you well know, I'm not an analytics expert. I'm not even heavy into analytics, but I know people who are. So it's interesting. You know, I kind of reached out to a, a whole bunch of people in the, uh, in the advanced stats community and who dabble in this stuff or spend a lot more time with it than I do and, and asked you, know, what are the things that you'd be looking for? So, um, you know, here are some of the, 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 the points that they, they raised. You know, even strength time on ice, comparatively speaking, power play time on ice, shorthanded time on ice, um, points per 60, shots per 60, um, penalty plus minus differential. That is the difference between how many penalties you draw and how many penalties uh, you you take and the, the, the goal percentage on your team, the relative goal percentage, the, um, your coursey, your relative coursey, things called goal involvement. Um, we've duplicating some of these, but here's another one. Primary points per 60. So goals and first assists only. And that's obviously a measure of raw scoring contribution. Um, how about point share? That would be total points over total team goals. Measure, uh, a measure of how many of a team's goals the player was actually involved in. Drawback is if you're a good player on a lousy team, you're going to have a higher share automatically. Expected goals for relative to teammates. I like the... Uh, I like all the lingo they use here. R-E-L, capital T space, lowercase x, capital G-F slash 60. That's, you go to Corsica Hockey for that. I don't do that, but people do. And uh, that's a proxy, apparently, for how much you drive play. And if you've got the expected goals for relative to teammates, you need the expected goals against relative to teammates. That would be rel T x G A slash 60. Similar, but for defensive contribution. How about time on ice share? Uh, this is a proxy for how much the player was relied on by the coach. Uh, we'll reward guys that were out for special teams a lot. Um, yeah, so it's, it's never-ending. I mean, there's, there's so many aspects to this. And what I discovered is you could find numbers and metrics and, and not insignificant ones that make a strong case for any of the 9, 10, 11, 12 guys that, uh, that I mentioned off the top, or the 15. Did I mention Blake Wheeler? Suddenly I, I had a flashback that maybe I didn't. Let me look at my notes here. I had to mention Blake Wheeler. He's my favorite player in the NHL, or one of them. Anyways, if I didn't mention Blake Wheeler as part of the... And, and that's, that's the problem I run into in this freaking Hart Trophy thing. It's, it's just endless, the number of legitimate candidates who, who, who need to go, you need to go through this, this exercise. So now that takes us to the next phase of, uh, of, of what I tried to do in order to, to outsource this a little bit. And, and it might have been an exercise in futility, also a little exercise in fun, as you'll see right now. So on Wednesday night, I'm sitting at home, and I'm actually watching the... Uh, the, uh, the St. Louis Blues choke one up to the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. And I'm thinking to myself, I should, uh, 
I should conduct a little bit of a heart trophy poll to try and help me understand the way the public might be thinking about some of these guys. So here's what I tweeted. Uh, researching heart trophy candidates. Still noodling around with multiple possibilities, so read nothing into who isn't or isn't included here. Merely curious to get some fan feedback. So, who's your pick from these four outstanding candidates? And I gave the options of Claude Giroux, Anze Kopitar, Nikita Kucherov, and Evgeny Malkin. Now, I only set up the poll for, you can set up on Twitter a poll to last as long as you want. Um, And I used to do it like a day at a time and stuff. And what I realized is after one hour, it doesn't matter. The numbers aren't going to change. I get such a large sample size so quickly that you really, you can run it for two hours, 10 hours, 24 hours, two weeks. The basic percentages aren't going to change. So in in one hour, I got 18,582 votes. And Nikita Kucherov got 29%. Uh, Claude Giroux got 25%. Anze Kopitar got 23%, as did Evgeny Malkin. So I found this very interesting. And I knew as I tweeted it that I was probably making a mistake. Shouldn't ask for help. And I especially shouldn't ask for help when I leave some very specific instructions. Because apparently the only thing anybody saw was that there was a poll here and there were four names for the Hart Trophy and Taylor Hall and Nathan McKinnon and Connor McDavid were not amongst them. Oh my goodness, you should see the mentions. Okay, and actually, let's, let's give you some of flavor of the kind of reaction I got here. This from at Henrik Lundqvist. I don't think it's the actual Henrik Lundqvist, but anyways, at Henrik Lundqvist, who tweeted at me. Imagine making a list of Hart Trophy candidates and leaving off Taylor Hall, Nathan McKinnon, and Connor McDavid. Now, I amped up my voice a little bit because I imagined that's how at Henrik Lundqvist was talking to me. Imagine making a list of Hart Trophy candidates and leaving off Taylor Hall, Nathan McKinnon, and Connor McDavid. Hmm. I just left them off. So the part where I said... Still noodling around with multiple possibilities. So read nothing into who is or isn't included here. Merely curious to get some fan feedback. Well, I guess I got some fan feedback. Okay. Um, next, next reaction was from Darren Tebow. At Darren Tebow. None of these guys. Brutal poll. FYI. McDavid is the best player in the NHL for the next 10 years. Okay. Uh, this one from uh, at Mountain Man 9910. How is Taylor Hall not on this list? New Jersey would not be there, not be where they are without him. Hashtag Hall for Heart. Uh, this one from Rich at Rich Zagon 1. Leaving Hall off this list is ignorant, and this is coming from an Islanders fan. Have you seen the Devils roster? To which I would say to Rich. Have you seen the tweet I put out? As in, read nothing into who isn't, isn't included here. Merely curious to get some fan feedback. Then uh, the flip side was, at Ryan Polona said, thank you for not providing McDavid as a candidate. The Canadian press is very biased sometimes. So there's a guy who thought I was actually leaving McDavid out of the equation entirely. He also didn't read the tweet. 
However, we did get some nice positive responses, and I, I, I favorited those. Let's see. Um, Alex Chavancy at A underscore Chavancy 23 said, the responses to this tweet are a perfect example of what's wrong with this website, which is to suggest that most people can't read. Um, this one from at M Zanette, who said, man, people are stupid. Bob has to give five people on his ballot. Hall, McKinnon, and McDavid are all there. He's debating the other four or five other spots, four and five. Well, that, that's partially true. The reason I didn't ask about Hall, McKinnon, and McDavid to the, to the Twitter poll is because, in my mind, Hall and McKinnon are going to be on my ballot, as is McDavid. I'm just not sure of the order. I've got a lot of work still to do on this over the course of the weekend and the beginning of next week. See how the season finishes up, get a complete picture, and go through all those fancy numbers as well as my eyeballs and uh, uh, things like goals and assists and points, old school numbers. Um, but but that's the, the, the gist of it. The reason I asked for help on those four players in particular is because in my mind, I think McKinnon and Hall are most certainly going to be there. And as I said, the, the whole MVP discussion, it all begins and starts with where you are on the spectrum of most valuable to his team. And I would fully admit and always have that I'm a lot closer to the, I worry less about twisting myself in a pretzel trying to figure out who's more valuable and get into a whole bunch of relative stuff. Than, but I don't just pick best player either. I, I can't ignore the definition, and we're not picking the best player. But to my point earlier, a lot of these fancy stats that are out there, Connor McDavid's far and away. I, I, there was, I won't get into the specifics of them because I, I don't want to take the time, but there are a whole bunch of numbers that reflect, and basically it's this. When Connor McDavid is on the ice for the Edmonton Oilers, they're an outstanding hockey team. When Connor McDavid is not on the ice for the Edmonton Oilers, they are a horseshit hockey team, or at least they have been over the course of this season. The difference between McDavid being a, any player, any one player being on the ice or not being on the ice, there's not a bigger gap in the world um, on so many of these metrics than when Connor McDavid is on the ice or not on the ice for the Edmonton Oilers. Now, I grant you the Oilers have been out of it forever. And I understand that the difference between whatever number they finish, 23rd, 24th, 25th, 26th, and 30th, or 31st rather, is it, it's almost inconsequential. But I, I also think that there's, value, there's still value in that. That if, if, if your share of goals on that team is, is double almost everybody else's, that's a candidate for the Hart Trophy, you've got to at least be considered. And so, anyways, that's why I had three guys I think I'm putting on my ballot. And then it's Giroux, Kopitar, Kucherov, and Malkin. Now, there's a whole bunch of people there I've left out. I understand that the fans in Winnipeg want Wheeler there and the fans in Washington want Ovi there. And, and as I said, the list goes on and on and on and on. And Brad Marchant in Boston probably deserves to be there. In, in this group of five. But here's the thing, too. And, and, I'm, and I am considering him in that other group. 
but he gets discounted for being Brad Marchand a little bit. And also, the other thing about a Twitter poll, you can only put four, uh, four items up there. That's why I put those four, because those were the ones that I was most interested in getting some feedback on. So, as I say, you can go through the numbers, conventional or otherwise, and you can build a case for any of these guys, and there's not a goddamn bad pick on any of them. Um, but, you know, you got to come up with five, and that's what I'm going to do. And as I said, I'll wait until the, uh, the weekend's over and uh, see where we're at. A few final thoughts on this whole heart thing. Um, number one, the dumbest guy on Twitter uh, the other night was me for putting up the poll, and, and I should have known better. Um, duh, I'm an idiot. Um, number two, I know everybody's all wound up about this most valuable to his team thing. I'm going to only say this. If you think the guys that ran the National Hockey League back in the early 1900s that came up with the definition for the Hart Trophy ever envisioned a 31-team league where 15 teams missed the playoffs or that they, they were putting all this deep thought into who's most valuable to his team in a league that for much of the, the century had six teams and four of them made the playoffs. And, or, or even, so that's what, 67% of the teams made the playoffs for much of the National Hockey League history. And then when we had the original 21 and 16 teams made it, and the numbers were even higher, it was in 70-some-odd percent of the National Hockey League teams made the playoffs. If you think that they were all bent in a pretzel trying to figure out who's more valuable, you don't know. I know the guys that ran the league in the 1980s, never mind the 1920s. And, and trust me, there wasn't that much deep thought going into the definition. Uh, number third thing I would point out, it's hard. I mean, you guys all have, your, most of you are listening, you're fans. So it's easy. If you're a Philadelphia Flyer fan, yeah, Giroux's your pick. Everybody else is stupid if they don't pick Giroux. If you're an Oiler fan, it's McDavid. Easy. If you're a Bruin fan, you got to debate. Is it Marchand? Is it Bergeron? But, you know, it would have been Bergeron if he hadn't got injured, I think. But um, anyways, it's, it's so, so hard to come, it up, come up with the, the – because it all goes back to that relative – where you fall on the spectrum – of, of value and most valuable to his team. So as I said, I'm, I'm pretty confident that Hall, McKinnon, McDavid are on my ballot. And then after that, I'm just trying to figure out who's, who's going to get screwed. So is it going to be Kucherov? Is it going to be Malkin? Is it going to be Giroux? Going to be Kopitar? I mean, if, if I go with Hall, McKinnon, and McDavid in some order... I only get to pick two, and there's four, six, eight guys that I can make a case for. So, simple as that. And as I said off the top, the great news is, and I, hey, listen, I, I, I'll, I'll vote on Tuesday, because the playoffs start Wednesday. I usually put my ballot in on Tuesday or Wednesday. I'll vote on Tuesday or Wednesday. I'd shoot my ballot out right away if you really wanted to see it, but they ask us not to do that, because if ever, everybody did that, we could have the award show next week instead of in Vegas in June. Uh, but this year there will be full transparency. And fair enough, then you get to, um, to, to look at my ballot for not only the heart, but for everybody and for every member of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. 
I'm cool with that. Knock yourself out. Just know one thing. However stupid you might think I am, you cannot even begin to imagine how much time and effort and labor and angst has gone into this decision over the last week and the next number of days. Alrighty then, let's get to some listener feedback. Uh, This one from Ian Robertson. Bob, my love affair with you began as part of my addiction to the hockey news. My thirst for that publication was so intense that I refused to order a subscription because I could pick one up at the newsstand on Monday, a full three days before it would arrive at the house. It would serve as my bathroom reading material, and I would scour it at least three times prior to the next week's arrival. Comments would be highlighted, important quotes selected, and questions would be neatly printed on the actual paper. It would then be stored for future reference. During Steve Dryden's reign, Steve Dryden, by the way, was the editor-in-chief after me. Um, Some might know him as the quiz master, but don't tell anybody. Uh, So during Steve Dryden's reign, I invited him to my school, Hillcrest in Mississauga, because I was promoting a beautifully charted two-by-three-foot teaching series entitled One-on-One. It provided patterns that could be taught to young players to improve their understanding of the world's greatest game. I thought it would be a superb addition to an already outstanding paper. Although Steve rejected my idea, it was a wonderful two-hour visit, and it turned out that he had actually attended Hillcrest as a youngster. I was born on August 16th, 1955. By the way, um, Bobcast note, I was born on August 16th, 1956. And now back to Ian. And I lived in Scarborough at Victoria Park in the 401 for my youth while playing for Wexford. As a lifelong hockeyaholic, you have and continue to provide me with many cherished moments, invaluable insight, and inspirational stories. I just wanted to thank you for all your outstanding work over the many years. Your work, whether on radio, television, print, or podcast, will always be a staple of my life. Thanks for all the wonderful times. Cheers from Ian Robertson. Thanks, Ian. That's a, a really nice... Um, uh, letter and uh, email and uh, fascinating that you were born on the same day as I was a year earlier. Fascinating that you were in a Scarberian at Victoria Park in the 401. So, um, and it's a weird intersection talking about Steve Dryden, uh, my pal, who uh, was I hired to work at the Hockey News and then became the editor-in-chief after I left. So um, store that away for... Uh, future reference because there's another reference to Steve coming up in this next letter. Okay, here we go. This from Paul Tebow. Hey, Bob, longtime fan and listener. Grew up in Scarborough, not far from you, around Kennedy Corvette Plaza. You went to Woburn Collegiate. I went to Neil McNeil and Midland Collegiate. I'm 55. You are, you're a, I'm a 1955 born. You are a 56 born and played for Scarborough Lions. I did likewise as a minor bantam before I went to high school. My question is this. When you were around 18 or 19 and going to Ryerson, did you play MTHL Intermediate for a group out of Ajax with a guy last name Flood? If so, do you remember the shooting stars and some epic battles around city rinks? Just curious. Hopefully you can find time to reply. Thanks very much, Paul Tebow. P.S. I played a few winters ago with Steve Dryden. Nice skater. Great guy weak finisher, and desperately in need of a new pair of long-pant Cooperalls. Well, first off, I should point out that Paul Tebow was an outstanding scout because to describe Steve Dryden as a nice skater, great guy, weak finisher, and desperately in need of a new pair of long-pant Cooperalls is on the money. Perfect scouting report. 
Um, wow, this is uncanny. All these Scarberians and guys that were born the year before me or, um, and, you know, again, intersection of uh, small world stuff here. Scarborough Lions, he played for the minor band of Scarborough Lions the same year I played for the Scarborough Lions Peewees. Um, and yes, I do recall playing intermediate. I do remember playing a team called the Shooting Stars. My memory's a little fuzzy of um, all those intermediate years, but uh, especially the time I got punched out in the lobby of Forest Hill Arena by a, a guy playing for another intermediate team, but that should be a story for another day because <laughs> we're running out of time here. But I will tell that story another day. But thank you for that nice uh, nice. Uh, trip down memory lane from Paul Tebow. Uh, this one from Mitchell Hagen. Hey, Bob, I'm sending this email while listening to your March 9th podcast. Uh, on the first day I've ever listened to podcasts, my family has been quite into hockey, go Leaf go, for all of my 24 years being alive. My father, Randy, and I have always held your opinion above all else's. Your appreciation and understanding of the sport and the individuals in and around it is second to none. Thank you very much for all the time. You spend 10 months a year, nine if we don't count, mail it in March to present the best knowledge to the viewers. I've just subscribed to the podcast. P.S. I hope you've been passing your abilities to others for the day the TSN lets you retire. That from Mitchell in Calgary. Well, thank you very much, Mitchell. Very kind words again. I had to put some really nice stuff with guys pumping my tires to compensate for all the abuse I took on Twitter this week for my um, heart trophy poll that idiots couldn't read. Oh, did I say that? Never mind. All righty then, let's get to the nuts and bolts of the Bobcast. You ask questions, I answer them. We'll try to err on the side of brevity. Get as many questions in as we possibly can here. So here we go. First question in this section of the Bobcast from Brad. I've been listening since day one, and this is my first time writing to you. I'd like to start off by saying I love your work. What you do for the fans makes my job being a New York Ranger fan a lot easier. Here's my questions. How do you see the off-season draft going down in the cap area? You see teams do things that they wouldn't have fathomed doing 20 or even 10 years ago. Will it be heavily trade-based uh, off-season with teams looking to better position with their cap situations? I've noticed in baseball, free agency is a complete buyer's market. Do you ever foresee the NHL getting to the point where in training camp, former All-Stars with gas in the tank don't have jobs? And as for my Rangers, is the smoke around them looking to move up and down in the draft real? I've read some of Jeff Gordon's quotes about getting talent in different age groups and things like that. I was just wondering if you have a gauge on what direction the organization feels is best come late June. As always, thanks for a great podcast. It makes my car rides enjoyable, and I look forward to more great content in Season 3. P.S. Dry Island is overrated. That's Brad from New York, New York. Well, Brad, um, I'll try and boil down a couple of the, the questions that you answered here, uh, questions you asked, and I'll try to answer them. On the uh, the draft, here's what I think about the Rangers. Right now, the Rangers have their own first-round pick. They've got Boston's first-round pick. They've got Tampa's first-round pick. In the second round, they've got their own second-round pick, and they've got the New Jersey Devils' second-round pick. And in the third round, they've got their own pick, and they've got Boston's pick. So by my count, they've got three, five, seven picks in the first three rounds. It's almost too many. Yeah, they're rebuilding. Yeah, they want to infuse with youth. But they've already started going down that road. They, they added guys like Cheadle and, and Anderson and, and what have you last year. You can only have so many young guys all of the same age. So I could see them trying to parlay the quantity of those draft picks into better quality. Is there a way that they could package some of those first-round picks and second-round picks to move up higher in the first round and get themselves a potentially higher impact player? 
No specifics other than I think that's the strategy for Jeff Gordon right now. Something else with the Rangers to keep in mind. Ilya Kovalchuk becomes a true, unrestricted free agent on April 15th. That's his 35th birthday. The circumstances under which he left the league put him on the voluntary retired list. He stays on that voluntary retired list until his 35th birthday. That's April 15th. As soon as April 15th, happy birthday, Ilya, rolls around, he is free to negotiate with any team in the National Hockey League unencumbered. You remember last year, he wanted to come back to the league, but the Devils owned his rights. And the Devils, and that extra step of the Devils having to basically do a sign and trade for Kovalchuk to come off the voluntary retired list was a little too complicated. Kovalchuk decided to stay in Russia. He won a gold medal in the Olympics, and now he wants to come back to the National Hockey League. So beginning April 15th, he can talk to teams. He can't formally sign a contract until July 1st, but there's nothing to stop him from agreeing to one on April 15th or 16th or 17th or whenever. A lot of people believe that he wants to play for the Rangers. A lot of people believe that the Rangers would like to have him as long as the term isn't too long um, and that the Rangers don't want to get jammed up with some long-term deals for veteran players. People are going to say, what about the rebuild? Well, yeah, they're rebuilding, but they want to do it quick. And if they can supplement and fill in holes with guys on one, two, or three-year contracts, then that's what I think that the Rangers will do. And... Um, I should also point out, because Kovalchuk is going to be 35, he has the over-35 contract rules in the CBA, which is another reason why teams will not want to give him too many multiple years. Because even if he decided to quit, he would still count against the cap hit. That's the rule for over-35 guys. Okay, next up. This one from... uh, It's not a name. It's a phone number. I won't read it. Do you still feel confident the LA Kings will get Drew Doughty uh, contract done this summer or next summer. What will it take? $11 million at eight years from Los Angeles, California. Hmm, this is an interesting one because um, we've been so focused on the Eric Carlson and everything that went down with him at the trade deadline or didn't go down with him and how that's going to play out. Um, I don't doubt for a moment that the Los Angeles Kings position is we're confident we're going to get this done with Drew Doughty. We're not going to let this get to summer of 2019, when he's scheduled to become an unrestricted free agent. So there's part of me thinks that the LA Kings are going to come in hot this offseason in, in July. And they're going to come to Drew Doughty and they're going to go, here you go, Drew, eight years, 12 million, sign it up, let's do it. There's really a part of me that thinks that's how easy it's going to be. And Drew Doughty's going to go, yeah, you know what? Wow, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of years. I like it in L.A., uh, why not? Let's do it. Boom, done. But there's also another part of me that says that's not necessarily being the LA Kings style to come in hot and, and you know and you know Kopitar's making ten and he's got however many years left on his deal. I think six, five or six left on his deal after this. So is there an issue there with Doughty making a lot more than Kopitar and, and what will that do to the salary structure? So maybe they will have to do this a little more judiciously. My fear would be that if they do it judiciously, which can also sometimes be perceived as grinding, 
if Drew Doughty at any point feels like they're grinding him to get a deal done, knowing Drew just as an emotional, visceral guy, I could easily see him saying, nah, you know what, screw it. Let's, let's just put it off. We'll talk about it next summer or what have you. So I know you don't have an answer to the question that you asked because obviously we don't know. But I, th- I really believe if the Kings come in hot with a big number, maximum term, big number that would blow the defenseman's salary scale out of the water, um, then I, I, see, I don't see him going anywhere. But if this gets to be a, a real negotiation where it's going back and forth and, and, and there's a lot of questions about value and what have you, then I could see a, a, an emotional guy like Drew saying, yeah, whatever, we don't need to do this right now. Let's just play. Because if you remember, the reason the Eric Carlson stuff all got started in the first place was because of an interview Drew Doughty did talking about, we're not taking a dollar less than we're worth. We're going market value, baby. And then he threw in a bunch of stuff about, yeah, it might be interesting to come home and play for the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and what have you. So as I said, I'm not overly concerned about Doughty leaving unless the Kings come in on the judicious side of the ledger, and I, I can't get a read yet on which way they're going to go. I wouldn't be surprised if they come in hot. Okay, next up is Dan O'Brien's question. He's from Kelowna, B.C. Hey, Bob, great work on the cast. Listen, to use your preface, <laughs> good one. Uh, I have really enjoyed the pod, but quickly, I really like the stuff you did on male cancer and especially the interaction you had with the one survivor that wrote the show and found help from listening. That's very powerful stuff. I could easily look it up online, and I have, but I just find my ADHD brain works better when someone can use examples, describes it, also a lot more entertaining. How do NHL buyouts work? I'm specifically wondering about the Milan-Lucic contract. Can the oil do it? Is it worth it? How would it work? Does the player lose dollars? Thanks again, Dan O'Brien from Columbus. Okay, Dan, well, basically on the buyouts, depending on your age and experience, a, buy, a player who gets bought out either earns two-thirds of the remaining years of his contract or he earns one-third. If it's a young buyout, not Milan Lucic, if it's a young guy who gets bought out, it can be one-third. So those are easier contracts to buy out. The Lucic variety is the two-thirds variety. And what the general rule of thumb is, without getting too wrapped up in the numbers, is you owe the player two-thirds of the remaining money that hasn't been paid out and you get to pay it out over double the number of years left on the contract. So let's use Milan as an example. Should point out, Milan signed a seven-year deal for forty-two million. He's in the second, completing the second year of that seven-year forty-two million dollar deal. Now it's interesting. The Lucic contract and a lot of contracts lately. I don't want to call them bio-proof, but there's no question that the agents, when they were negotiating these. They were front-end loading them, knowing that the buyout's more likely to occur at the end as opposed to the beginning of a contract. And so you end up with Lucic, for example. He made $8 million last year, $8 million this year. He's scheduled to make, in the following years, $7 million, $6 million, $4 million, $5 million, and $4 million. You can see where this is going. Also, um, much of it is in signing bonus. Um, Half of basically, I'm just looking here, yeah, pretty much every year, half of his income is in signing bonus, although there's a couple of years where, in the one year where he makes $4 million, $3 million of it is in signing bonus, another year, $4 million of it, $3 million of it he makes signing bonus. So, 
Anyways, buying out Milan Lucic would be an option for the Edmonton Oilers, but I don't think it's a very good one. So let me find the buyout. By the way, go to capfriendly.com for all your contract needs. That's the official um, place that uh, the Bobcast goes to for all these things. And then look at the buyout. So now if Milan Lucic were to get bought out at the end of this season, and I'm not suggesting that he will, but if he were, um, the Oilers would still get dinged with some pretty significant cap hits. Keep in mind, his cap hit for each of the next five years is $6 million. If they buy him out, the cap hit next season would be $3.2 million, $3.7 million the year after that, $5.7 million the year after that, and $4.2 million the year after that, and $5.7 million the year after that. So there's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Five years, and in two of those five years, the buyout cap hit is almost as big as the actual cap hit would be. So without boring everybody with a lot of numbers here, this is, I don't, I guess you could save, you obviously save a little bit of, of money, um, you know, 2.7 million, 2.26 million, 266,000, 1.7 million. But in the grand scheme of things, you're not getting an enormous cap savings by buying out a Milan Lucic and you're much, much better having an exit interview with him and saying, Hey Milan, what are you going to do to be better next year? And I think he's a smart guy and I think he'll try to find ways to reinvent his game. And I don't know that he'll ever, um, if you'll ever feel like he's earning his $6 million with the Oilers. But you know what? I'm not ready to write him off just yet. Um, because Milan Lucic, I understand he's not the fastest skater in the world. And, but he, and he's going to turn... He's going to turn 30 this summer. I still think there's tread... I, th- I still think there's tread on that tire... And I hope Milan Lucic proves me right, and I, certainly Edmonton Oilers fans do too. All right, let's try to rapid-fire three or four questions here. Hey, Bob, love the show. Do you see the Detroit Red Wings being able to take on a bad contract like Jason Spetz's or Ryan Callahan's, for example, in exchange for more picks? Personally, I'd like to see Spetz on the wings and get a second-rounder from Dallas. Then if the deadline all goes well, we could trade Spetz for another pick. What are your thoughts? Well, Justin, my thoughts are that, and it's just a guess, um, Jason Spetz is likely to be bought out by the Dallas Stars in the offseason. That would be my guess. He did not have a big role under Ken Hitchcock. I can't see that expanding. I think there's going to be some, there's the potential for major upheaval in Dallas. Uh, wait to the end of the season here. Uh, make sure that Jim Nill and Ken Hitchcock get a vote of confidence from owner Tom Gillardy. They don't have that yet, I don't believe. And then we'll see what uh, they do because uh, the year they had was unacceptable. And I think there's going to be some significant change of some form in Dallas. And a Spezza buyout could be one of those elements. Next up from Ben. Hey, Bob, firstly, I want to wish you all the best in the next years, months of your work. Because the day you decide to hang up the boots as an insider reporter will be a day of great reflection and celebration of your contributions to hockey across the globe. A great topic right now is the playoff format in the NHL, and one idea I've heard is a play-in game, such as the Major League Baseball, with its incredibly exciting wildcard games. Now, if there is a consideration for playing too many games, why wouldn't the NHL reduce the regular season by a couple of games to compensate for more teams participating in playoff-type games since there inevitably will be 32 teams in the coming years? Thanks for your time. Enjoy the playoffs, 
and your margarita-filled summer. Warm regards, Ben. Bottom line, Ben, is there's not going to be any play-in to a playoff. Um, they're not going to shorten the regular season. Uh, it's just a non-starter. Um, and National Hockey League is happy with the playoff form as, as it is, uh, and it ain't going to change anytime soon. Next one is from Reed in Banff, Alberta. Hey, Bob, listening to your last Bobcast, uh, podcast, you took the opportunity to answer some older questions. Unfortunately, mine did not get brought up. But with the recent U Sports Championship being played, I thought it might be worth another shot. University of Alberta took the championship game, making the most successful Canadian university hockey organization. My main question is, why doesn't this league get much attention and why don't you see many players continue on further? Thanks again, Reed Wilson, Banff, Alberta. Uh, love Canadian University hockey. Uh, you, big thumbs up to U Sports. Congrats to the Golden Bears. Um, Anytime you watch a Canadian University game, it's really exciting. They're older, more mature players. Oftentimes, they're between 20 and 25 years of age, guys that have finished major junior hockey. Um, and the reason they don't get more attention is very simple. To get attention in the hockey world, you start at the center of the universe, and that's the National Hockey League, and you start to draw out um, spheres of influence from the NHL. And so major junior hockey, college hockey, the minors, uh, the European leagues, those leagues have a much more direct line contact um, with the National Hockey League. Therefore, they get more attention. It's as simple as that. Canadian University hockey isn't bad. Um, there are occasional players who come from Canadian University to the National Hockey League, not as much lately as there was there for a while with the Mike Ridleys and, and others, Joel Wards and, and what have you. Um, but anyways, uh, University Hockey, two thumbs up to U Sports, but uh, it's not going to get the attention because it doesn't have as direct a line to the National Hockey League as all those other leagues. Uh, this one from Liam Terry. Hey, Bob, just doing some research for a new exhibit and was hoping you could answer a few questions that I cannot seem to find, answer to's, find answers to. Number one, how long have you been doing pre-draft rankings for TSN? Number two, when did you first start covering the World Junior Tournament for TSN? Let me answer those questions out of order. My first World Junior Tournament for TSN was the 1991 World Juniors in Saskatoon, and I've done it every year for TSN, all, almost every year since then. I didn't actually cover the World Juniors in 92 for TSN, but ever since then, I've been on that. Now, I should point out that I actually did the 1990 World Junior Championships on the CBC. Um, the, the late Don Whitman was the play-by-play guy. Scotty Bowman was the color commentator. Brian Williams, who now works at TSN, but of course was a legend that started at the CBC, uh, was the uh, between-periods host, and I was the between-periods analyst. So that's kind of cool. My first World Junior I ever attended was 86 in Hamilton, uh, covering it for the Hockey News. I started going to World Juniors in 89 in Anchorage, Alaska, um, then working for the Hockey News. And as I said, 1990, CBC, in Helsinki, and away we go. But since 1991 with TSN. How long have I been doing pre-draft rankings for TSN? That would be, I would imagine, since I came over to TSN full-time after leaving the Hockey News. I always had a newspaper job. Started the Sioux Star, editor-in-chief of the Hockey News from 82 to 91. Uh, 91 to 97 at the Toronto Star. 97 to 2000, I believe, back at the Hockey News. So up until 2000, I, I did my stuff for the Hockey News, my draft preview stuff. should point out, too, that um, 
again, not to toot my own horn, but just just stating a fact. In the mid nine in the mid nineteen eighties, when I worked at the Hockey News, there was zero, and I mean zero, coverage of the NHL draft. There were no draft previews. There was no scouting services. There there was basically nothing. It was NHL Central scouting, and the draft did not get very much attention at all. One of the things I wanted to do as editor-in-chief of the Hockey News was to create more awareness for the National Hockey League entry draft. I've always been a bit of a draft draft nerd. And so, anyways, I think I started that probably around the... 84, 85, 86, somewhere in there, I started doing a little bit of draft coverage that was over and above what anybody had done before, and it got expanded. And by the time I left the Hockey News in 1991, we had a complete separate publication that was the Hockey News Draft Preview. I did the draft rankings for the the Hockey News Draft Preview exactly the same way I do them now for TSN, and uh, that's the history on that. Next question comes from Newcastle, Ontario. Owen Taylor writes, Hey, Bob, what do you think of Ryan Donato and Ellie Tolvanen being the front runners for the Calder Trophy as top rookie next season? They are getting considerable games in before next season. Well, there's not much doubt about the talent of either one of those guys, and they both know how to put the puck in the net. And boy, has Ryan Donato made an immediate impact on the Boston Bruins, which good thing, too. I mean, with the injury to Rick Nash, Donato's kind of stepped right into his role and, and filled the net, basically. Uh, that's been great. Tolvanen, um, tremendous upside, and now with the Nashville Predators. It's going to be a fascinating uh, rookie race next season. We can already project ahead, of course. It's the uh, the class of 2018, headed by Rasmus Dahlin. Who knows how many of those guys will be instant NHLers, but I would imagine Dahlin would be, and he'd be an immediate favorite to win it. But when you've got Ryan Donato... And you've got Casey Middlestat, who just signed with the Boston Bruins, and Dylan Sakura with the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. Henrik Borgstrom um, from the 2016 first-round pick of the Florida Panthers, now with the Panthers. He has the potential to put up some big numbers for the Panthers next year. you got Jordan Greenway, who came out with the Minnesota Wild. You, of course, Tolvanen, we mentioned. Uh, Adam Gadette with the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, all those guys that, that signed at the end of this season. Uh, it's going to be fascinating. Who knows from the 2017 draft? Is Elias Pettersson going to make the Vancouver roster? It's going to be uh, fascinating to see, but that's the. I'm always amazed. Every year I say it, uh, I feel like we're in the golden age of hockey because every group of rookies that comes in just seems to get better and better, and there's more of them, and it's deeper, and my goodness, they're they're talented. Okay, uh, next question comes from our friends in Montreal. Jean Alexandre says, Hi, Bob. I know it's a long way to go, but what do you think of Alexi Lafreniere so far? Have you seen him play this season? Does he get a real chance to be number one overall pick in 2020? I know there is Quinton Byfield from Ontario, who is really amazing too. All the best to you and your family. Jean Alexandre from Montreal. Okay, uh, Jean, first off, uh, I've not seen Alexei Lafreniere play in person. I've just seen video of him this year. should point out that uh, the first overall pick in last year's Quebec Major Junior Hockey League uh, minor midget draft uh, had an amazing season for Ramuski. 42 goals in the regular season, 80 points. So this rookie finished sixth in the entire league in goals, ninth in the entire league in points. 
42 goals, 80 points in 60 games. To give you a little bit of a comparison of how monumental those numbers are, Philip Zadina, uh, who's a year older than Lafreniere, uh, and plays for the Halifax Mooseheads and is going to be one of the top two or three or four players taken in this year's draft, had two more goals, 44 goals, had five more points, 85 points, in three fewer games than Lafreniere. So the point here is Lafreniere's numbers were extremely comparable to Philip Zadina's, and Zadina's draft eligible now, and because Lafreniere is a late birthday, he's not eligible for next year's NHL draft. He's got to wait till 2020. So right now, uh, those who know this stuff, Craig Button amongst others, are projecting that Lafreniere would be the very early, early, early line favorite for 2020. You mentioned Quinton Byfield, uh, who played minor midget hockey for the York Simcoe Express in the Ontario Minor Hockey Association. Byfield, by the way, six foot three. Uh, oh, actually, he's almost six foot four, 207 pounds. I believe he got 48 goals and 92 points in 34 Eastern AAA, OMHA, AAA games with the York Simcoe Express. Now, he's an interesting guy. We've talked about Byfield before, and we should talk about him more. Um, one second here. Um, yeah, okay, we'll talk about him here. Um, the, the interesting thing about Byfield, aside from the fact that he's a really big kid and seems to be really a precocious talent at an age group, is that he's from Newmarket, Ontario. He's going to go number one overall on Saturday's um, OHL minor midget draft, and he's represented by War Hockey. Um, I don't want to say that he's the next Connor McDavid because he's not at all the next Connor McDavid, but he's a pretty special player, and he's from Newmarket, same hometown as McDavid. He um, is going to go number one overall in the draft, uh, just as Connor McDavid did when he went to Erie. And um, he's represented by War Hockey, same as Connor McDavid. So kind of interesting. Now, Byfield is uh, expected to go number one overall to the Sudbury Wolves in Saturday's Ontario Hockey League minor midget draft. And uh, Sudbury's, like Erie at the, uh, the time that McDavid went to them, not a very good franchise, one that's been on hard times for quite some time. And Byfield is going to try to do for the Sudbury Wolves what McDavid did for the Erie Otters. And I'll always give Connor McDavid huge props. At the time he went to the Erie Otters, they were not a good organization. They were the organization that a lot of Canadian kids were saying, I'm not going to play for them. They hadn't performed very well for quite some time. They were in the doldrums. It was an American team. And it was easy for a lot of the blue chip kids in Ontario to say, that's an organization I don't want to play for. Connor McDavid said, you know what? Not only am I going to go there, I'm going to go there as an exceptional 15-year-old. And he basically led, at that time, a moribund Erie Otter franchise out of the wilderness. I don't know if Quinton Byfield will be able to do the same thing for the Sudbury Wolves, but he's going to give it a try. And so credit to him for just going. He's the number one prospect in the draft. Sudbury's got the number one pick, and he's going. So full credit to him for doing that. Next question in a very similar vein. This one from David McDonald. I saw you were in attendance in November at the Whitby Silverstick Tournament. Anyone stand out to you from that group? Quinton Byfield of the York Simcoe Express appears to be the consensus number one overall pick in the OHL draft, but I'd be curious if anyone else caught your eye. That from David McDonald. And um, 
this came in in January, so uh, David's got a good eye, too. He knew then that Byfield was the consensus number one guy. As far as other guys that are going to go high in this draft that caught my eye, I happened to see the Toronto Marley minor midgets play, and there were two defensemen on that team. Uh, one of them is Jamie Drysdale, and the other one is, I believe, it's Leighton Moore. And neither one of them are huge. Uh, Moore's uh, smaller than Drysdale. I think Drysdale is listed at 5'11", 155, or 160. But my goodness. And again, back to the point I made about when the rookie class shows up to the NHL every year, you marvel at the speed and skill. Well, I watched this Toronto Marley game for one game, and I was just blown away by how fast, how skilled, how talented kids like Jamie Drysdale and uh, Leighton Moore are. And uh, so good luck to them in the OHL draft. Good luck to all the kids in the OHL draft. should point out that the, um, I believe the Western League draft is May 3rd. I think it's in Red Deer. And the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League draft isn't until June the 2nd. So um, I, of course, will be paying particularly close attention to the OHL draft because I happen to have a son Michael McKenzie, who's the general manager of the Kitchener Rangers. So good luck to him. Good luck to all the teams. Good luck to all the players. And uh, keep in mind, a draft is just a draft. They just hang a label on you. It's for you to chart your own course, um, whether you choose to play in major junior hockey, whether you choose to play college hockey, uh, junior A, wherever. Um, Do your own thing. Make your own way. And uh, it'll all be good for you and your family. Okay, that's pretty much it for this edition of the Bobcast, although not before I get a quick plug-in for a very worthy cause. That would be myself. I'm very excited to announce that um, uh, I've got a book project coming up uh, in concert with uh, Jim Lang. Uh, It's called Everyday Hockey Heroes, Inspirational Stories on and Off the Ice. It is a collection of stories from famous and not-so-famous people across Canada and the United States celebrating their love for the game. Uh, watch for it. It's coming out this fall. And if you would like to pre-order it or have a look at the uh, the very nice cover that Simon & Schuster Canada has put together for it, you can go to everydayhockeyheroes.ca. That's everydayhockeyheroes.ca. Check it out. I am actually really excited about it. There'll be a lot more uh, talk about it uh, in due time. But in the meantime, uh, enjoy this final weekend of the NHL regular season. Also, the Masters, James Duffy, Puffy and the gang, down in Augusta. It's always a great weekend, isn't it? Masters, um, final weekend of the regular season, right on the eve of playoffs. And you know what makes it better than anything? Is when you get some really nice spring weather. You're watching the Masters. You're watching the final weekend of the season. You're looking at the playoff charts. You're getting ready. But it's spring. It's spring Spring has sprung, but it hasn't sprung yet. So spring, do not be afraid to show your face anytime soon. Have a good one. Another season in the books. Time for the playoffs, baby. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to 
bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the at TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.